0: Welcome to Behind the Knife's AppSite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated AppSite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us
1: a review. Now, dominate the day, and dominate the site. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligasure Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the Tac motorized fixation device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Decision curved jaw cordless ultrasonic device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Welcome back, it's Patrick and Kevin,
0: and we are talking trauma. As always, you want to start with the trauma survey, with your primary survey. A lot of the questions on the app site just want you to be able to prioritize. So remember, your primary survey, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. You can then move on to your secondary survey, which includes a systematic head-to-toe physical exam, and if your patient's able to give one, a history Of course, we also have adjuncts we can use to help evaluate our trauma patients, including vital signs, EKG, labs, x-ray, fast exam, and the truth machine, the CT scanner. So, Kevin, starting with airway, what does it mean when a patient's protecting their airway? What does that mean to you? So, we want to make sure that they can cough, clear
2: secretions, and swallow. Airway compromises secondary to airway obstruction or altered mental
0: status. Yeah, and that can be due to, you mentioned airway obstruction, due to something like a direct injury, a uh, trauma to the neck, or be swelling in that area, or even bleeding. You also mentioned altered mental status, right? So altered mental status, that's, we're talking about your head here, head injury, drug overdose, et cetera. But if your head is so messed up that you can't coordinate all those activities like coughing, clearing, and swallowing, you are in fact not protecting your airway. So what are some tips to manage airway compromise? Yeah, so you can start with the chin lift and the chin tilt, definitely have the suction ready to go. And then, of course, we have our oropharyngeal and nasopharyngeal airways. Yeah, so lots of tips and tricks. And this is, of course, made harder by the presence of a C-collar in our blunt uh, injured patients. Moving on to more definitive airways, you can certainly intubate the patient. If you cannot intubate or ventilate that patient, then you move on to a cricothyrotomy. Now, some patients will arrive with a king supraglottic airway. This is not considered a definitive airway and should be exchanged for an endotracheal tube when appropriate. So Kevin, you may get a question on the exam about rapid sequence intubation. What kind of meds would you use for induction and what's your favorite med for paralysis? Yeah,
2: for the RSI, generally you, you're, for the induction, you're going to start with etomidate or ketamine as these are least likely to cause hypotension. And then for the paralysis, succinylcholine is the best one to use as the shortest half-life, its safest when obtaining a difficult
0: airway. Yeah. And that succinylcholine has that short half-life. So if you run into problems with the airway, then you can, you know, within five minutes or so, get them back, potentially even breathing spontaneously again. And really more commonly, it's about that neurostatus, right? So we want to be able to reevaluate and uh, do a thorough neuro exam. And that short acting succinylcholine is ideal uh, for that situation. So Kevin, I mentioned cricothyrotomy; Those are scary situations. Can't intubate, can't ventilate what are you actually cutting through? What's the piece of anatomy you're cutting through to place that emergency airway? So it's the cricothyroid membrane. Yeah. And the cricothyroid membrane right between the thyroid cartilage and the cricoid cartilage. And that's the most prominent part of your neck. And that's why we're aiming for that as opposed to the tracheostomy, which is deeper and more posterior, harder to get to. So in an emergency situation, we're shooting for the cricothyroid membrane, again, the most prominent part of the neck, easiest way to get uh, an emergency airway in. I bet everyone out there is actually feeling it right now on themselves. That's what I do every time I think about it. It's no. a little feel. All right, moving on to breathing. How do you evaluate uh, for breathing, Kevin?
2: So pretty basic stuff. You auscultate, you check for the chest rise and fall, and then you feel for
0: crepitus. And if you have concern for hemo or pneumothorax, you're going to place a chest tube. What are some of the kind of basic pointers when it comes to chest tubes, Kevin.
2: Yeah. So you want to insert it in the fifth intercostal space, generally identified at the intersection of the anterior axillary line and nipple in males or inframammary fold in females. It's really easy to go too low. So you really want to be high kind of at that nipple line in males or the inframammary fold in females. Yeah. So generally you're going to place a relatively small board chest tube, something around 28 French, and these are preferred over the the large chest tubes like the 36 French for both hemo and pneumothoraces. <laughs> And then classically, if you get greater than 1,500 cc's of blood out of the chest tube, this warrants a trip to the operating room. However, it also depends on if the patient continues to bleed and if they require ongoing
0: transfusions. Yeah, we're going to jump into a little bit more about the indications for thoracotomy later in the episode. You're right, Kevin, this question about small versus large-bore chest tubes. So, you know, 28 French is not that small, but the main studies show that 28 to 32 French are as good as anything over 36 French. So you don't need to put in that big quote unquote, you know, historical trauma tube. And then not sure if it's fair game yet, but pigtail catheters, right? These are the typically around 14 French catheters. They have been shown to be uh, effective for pneumothorax, absolutely. And hemothorax too. And so it's also less painful for the patient. And so that, that may be something that comes up on the exam. It may not probably fair game at this point, because they are used uh, quite frequently and have been proven. All right, let's move on to circulation. So as part of the primary survey, you're going to check the circulation with a limited pulse exam. Really, you're just feeling for a pulse. Uh, typically, the femoral artery is your best shot. You can also use the radials. Usually the neck, the carotids are uh, covered by the C collar or folks working up top there. Take note that as the true primary survey is just feeling for a pulse. It's not blood pressure. Certainly, we can use blood pressure as an adjunct when we think about circulation, but the actual part of the primary survey is that pulse check. Kevin, what is shock index? Yeah, so this is a quick way to help
2: determine quickly if a patient has shock. So It's the heart rate divided by the stog blood pressure. If it's
0: greater than one, this suggests shock. And in the trauma patient, you assume it's hemorrhagic shock. Yeah, hemorrhagic shock number one, number two is hemorrhagic shock, number three is hemorrhagic shock. These are trauma patients, remember. And so, Big picture, we want to obtain source control as rapidly as possible. And typically that means getting to the operating room or interventional radiology suite without delay. But we're also going to do a few things at the same time. We want to obtain vascular access so we can start resuscitation. You have a few options for that. Multiple peripheral IVs are wonderful if they're working well. Ideally, you want a relatively, quote unquote, large bore. Kevin, what is large bore? Yeah, generally 16 or 18 gauge. Yeah, and you can use a central line. Typically, there's subclavian or femoral, a cordis resuscitation type catheter, and or intraosseous catheters. If you can't get a line, there's some controversy about that being a, a go-to option, or uh, whether it's just more of an adjunct. And really, it's more of an adjunct at this point. What are we going to give our trauma patients, Kevin?
2: Yeah, so nowadays we resuscitate with blood, not crystalloid. Whole blood is best. And if you're using component therapy, you want to try and administer it at the one to one to one ratio.
0: Yeah, crystalloids for cooking pasta, they say. <laughs> and again, that's this is hugely important. So if you have the option for whole blood, that is actually the best one to one to one. Otherwise, you'll almost certainly get a question about that type of ratio in terms of transfusion. The other thing is practically you want to start massive transfusion protocol early. Uh, another absite favorite are the classes of hemorrhagic shock. Right, there's class one through four. And this describes the percent blood lost. And this is the classic description of the tennis score, right? So class one, less than 15% blood loss or total volume blood loss, class two, 15 to 30%, class three, 30 to 40%, and class four greater than 40. So you have a zero, 15, 30, and then 40. So Kevin, for class one, that's a little more subtle, right? What is the changes that we might see or something you could pick up on a question stem that would describe class one shock?
2: Yeah. So I think the thing on the question stem would probably be the, the heart rate and the pulse pressure are really the only things that you're going to
0: see change in class one shock. Right. Right. That's exactly right. And moving on to class three shock, what's the big difference there? What's the change that again may pop up in a question stem? Yeah. This is the first time you actually see the blood pressure drop. Right. Important classification. And in class three and class four shock, two patients start becoming more anxious, confused, et cetera. This mental status changes uh, as well. All right, let's move on to disability. So, Kevin, what are the two key components to the disability exam as part of the trauma primary survey? Yeah, you need to calculate a GCS and a look at their pupillary exam. And knowing how to calculate a GCS score is something you just need to learn how to do. So, you got to check out the table, uh, familiarize yourself uh, with these numbers. It can be a bit confusing, but uh, stare at it long enough and, and you may uh, put it in that brain ears. What component of the GCS score, Kevin, has the most? Uh, relevance in terms of prognosis it's actually the motor score that's right and what cutoff, when it comes to gcs suggests you might want to intubate the patient so gc less than eight intubate that's right all right we are cranking through let's get to e exposure you're going to cut off the patient's clothes and expose the patient's entire body check for wounds especially penetrating injuries it's of critical importance that you find all of those penetrating injuries especially when it comes to gunshot wounds so you got to check in all the crevices all the deep and hard to reach places You're going to log roll the patient to examine their back. And remember once finished with the full exam that you cover the patient in warm uh, blankets. So one of the key adjuncts that we use in the trauma bay is the FAST exam or focused assessment with sonography for trauma. And we use the uh, FAST exam to try to identify fluid in different spaces within the body, Kevin, right? So what are the four windows for a FAST exam?
2: Yeah, so you have your pericardial window. Your right upper quadrant, also known as the patorenal window. You have Your left upper quadrant, also known as the splenorenal. And your pubic. And what about an E-fast or extended fast? What does that add on? So this adds an anterior view in the bilateral hemithoraces to detect a pneumothorax. Okay.
0: Let's say I have a positive fast and the, and the patient's unstable. Straight to the operator. Yeah, easy, right? How about I have a positive fast and a stable patient? So this, you generally would get further imaging with a CT scan. Right. Lots more information from the truth machine. And you can repeat a FAST, right? That's an ultrasound test. It's easy to do, and it's actually something that can be quite helpful, especially in patients where their clinical uh, status is changing. It's also important to note that there are some limitations uh, that come with a FAST that can lead to, for instance, false negative results. Uh, I think the biggest point here is that the FAST exam will not see what's inside the retroperitoneum. And the retroperitoneum is uh, attached essentially to the pelvis. So if you have a bad pelvic fracture, bad pelvic bleeding, and bad retroperitoneal hematoma, your FAST exam is not going to be able to identify that. So that's critically important. All right, another hot topic in trauma is the resuscitative thoracotomy. Kevin, what are some of the main considerations that go through your mind when you're trying to decide whether or not to cut open a patient's chest?
2: Yeah, you want to know the mechanism of the injury, kind of blunt versus penetrating. You want to know the location of the injury. And you want to know the
0: duration of the cardiac arrest and if they have any signs of life. Right. And signs of life include pupillary reflex, spontaneous ventilation, carotid pulse, measurable blood pressure, extremity movement, and a cardiac electrical activity. So there are two primary guidelines that we use in the trauma community, one from the Western Trauma Association, the other from the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. And they kind of clash a little bit. And so this makes this topic a bit more controversial, a little more nuanced. When it comes to the Western Trauma Association guidelines, they are referring to patients who are pulseless and have no signs of life. So if the patient has a penetrating injury, you can consider going ahead with resuscitative thoracotomy if they've had less than 15 minutes of CPR. Whereas if they've had a blunt injury, you can consider resuscitative thoracotomy if they've had less than 10 minutes of CPR. So again, 15 minutes for penetrating, 10 minutes for blunt, They also have a category for patients who are quote-unquote in profound refractory shock. Now compare this to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma Guidelines, which are a little bit of a mouthful, so I'm just going to go ahead and read them. So for penetrating thoracic injury, resuscitative thoracotomy is strongly recommended for pulseless patients with signs of life and is conditionally recommended for pulseless patients without signs of life. For penetrating extra thoracic injury, resuscitative thoracotomy is conditionally recommended for pulseless patients with and without signs of life. And for blunt injury, resuscitative thoracotomy is conditionally recommended for pulseless patients with signs of life and is not recommended for patients without signs of life. So again, there's a lot there. Um, not sure exactly how that would uh, come across on the ab site. Uh, it may be a bit too nuanced, but you have all the information there that you need. Now, Kevin, if you remove uh, aortic occlusion, for instance, after recessive thoracotomy, or maybe you used a reboa. What are some of the physiologic changes that the body might experience? Yeah, it can be quite dramatic. So now you have a substantial drop in your aortic afterload,
2: and you have a washout of ischemic metabolites from dilated distal vasculature. So
0: paradoxically, restoration of blood flow causes further tissue injury. Yeah, yeah, patients can get even sicker on you. All right, let's talk about damage control laparotomy. So what are the two main goals of damage control surgery? Stop the bleeding and limit the contamination. Yeah, and so you do that cuz you want to get out of the OR quick, right? These patients are really sick, they're on the oftentimes getting sicker right in front of your eyes. And so, take care of those things, stop the bleeding, limit contamination, keep going with your resuscitation, get to the ICU, and then you can come back to the operating room once all the physiologic uh, derangements have been corrected. All right, with that let's move on to damage control resuscitation. And so this is essentially permissive hypotension, right? Kevin, you're given enough blood pressure to maintain a perfusion to key organs. And how do we measure what's enough when it comes to damage control resuscitation? Yeah, generally you generally want the patient mentating and to have a radial pulse, right? And a radial pulse roughly correlates to a systolic blood pressure of around 90. And we're trying to avoid this idea of quote unquote, blowing the clot, right? So we're given enough blood pressure, but not too much and we're going to limit the use of crystalloids, as we mentioned earlier, and we're going to transfuse blood products, right? Whole blood is is best, but we also talked about this balance resuscitation. What is that exactly? So that's the one-to-one we talk about, which is platelets to packed red cells to FFP in a ratio that gets close to being like whole blood. Yeah. So for every bag of, of packed cells you see going into the patient, that needs to be mashed with a bag of FFP. The tricky part about this though, is that for Every five bags of pack cells and FFP, you're actually going to give one bag of platelets, it's, because those are either five or six packs of pooled platelets. So again, sometimes if you're in a, a real gnarly trauma case and the bags are piling up on the ground, you're going to see hopefully equal stacks of pack cells bags and FFP bags with fewer of those platelet bags, because so again, those are five or six packs uh, in that single bag. Kevin, what about uh, TXA? What's the indication uh, for TXA from the CRASH two trial? So. We give TXA, uh, generally one gram within three hours of injury with a subsequent one gram over the next eight hours. Yeah. And what's the mechanism by which we think TXA may be helping us in the trauma setting? It helps decrease the fibrinolysis. Yeah, that's exactly right. Let's move on to thromboelastography or TEG, which is the most commonly used commercial product. This looks at the whole of clotting from a given blood sample. And uh, sh- you should uh, definitely check out our figure in our book. It's pretty phenomenal. It gives you all the information you need. And it's colorful too, which is kind of nice. So there are a number of different uh, pieces of information that you can get from a tag. And I think at this point, it's certainly fair game uh, on the app site. And that includes asking specific questions about given features like the R time, for instance, and what you might give. So let's go through each of those one by one, Kevin. So starting with Time or the R time or reaction time, if that's prolonged, what do we want to give? So, in that situation, you want to give FFP. That's right, because this is measuring how long it takes to start the clot uh, in terms of getting it formed. Next, we want to talk about the angle, which shows how quickly the clot is forming. Kevin, if we have a low angle, what's indicated? In this situation, you give cryoprecipitate. Awesome. And then the amplitude or the MA, the maximum amplitude, measures the uh, strength of the clot. If this is low, what do we give? Platelets. And finally, the LY30 or the lysis at 30 minutes. If lysis is high, what can we give? TXA. Right, for the same reasons that we mentioned earlier. All right, we are cruising along. Let's talk about head trauma. This is a favorite topic on the ab site and one that's a little bit shirky because it's not something we deal with every day. So let's talk some, talk about different types of intracranial bleeds. Kevin, how do you describe an epidural hematoma? Yeah. So this is a very characteristic
2: lens shaped collection of blood that's contained by the suture lines on the head CT. Yeah. What's the classic presentation for these patients? Yeah. So it's generally someone like a bat to the head and then they'll have a
0: lucid interval and then they'll have a rapid deterioration. Right. And compare and contrast that to a subdural hemorrhage. So what does that look like on CT?
2: Yeah, so that's more of a crescent-shaped collection of blood because it's crossing the suture lines on the CT. Right, and management for both of these, management for both of these is an immediate surgical evaluation and
0: determining if they need to have a decompression. Yeah, compare and contrast. That's an interparenchymal bleeds. These are you know located within the paren- parenchyma itself. Most common after blunt injury. These may require surgical intervention, but less frequently. And last would be the subarachnoid hemorrhage, Kevin. So this is what's the classic presentation for this. this is the classic ruptured brain aneurysm the worst headache of your life yeah and it can be spontaneous or traumatic now this is also a question that's a bit nuanced you know who needs an icp monitor what's the easy answer the easy answer is a patient with a gcs less than eight with an abnormal head ct yeah now there's more that goes into it than that but that's your upside under gcs less than eight and there's two different kind of types right of monitors and what are the big categories right you have the ventriculostomy and you have the bolt right and that ventriculostomy goes into the ventral itself right so it can measure pressure but it can also drain off csf whereas the bolt is placed into the parenchyma itself barely into the parenchyma and will measure a pressure within the parenchyma itself and so when it comes to treating patients with head trauma we're really intent on reducing what we want to reduce secondary injury and we do this by
2: avoiding hypotension and hypoxia that's right what about Cushing's reflex? This is often tested. What is that? Or what is Cushing's reflex? Yeah, this is always one that I had a hard time memorizing for whatever reason, but it's when they have bradycardia and hypertension with altered respirations. Yeah, and what does
0: that indicate? That indicates that they have compression of their brain. Yeah. And then, you know, could mean that the patient's going to herniate and they either already has herniated or is herniating. And so when it comes to management of elevated ICP, what are some of the things that we can do?
2: Yeah, so start with the easiest thing elevate the head of the bed. You can also drive down their CO2 to
0: 35. You can use mannitol or hypertonic saline. And then of course, sedation and paralyzation. And emergent surgical evaluation, right? If these patients, certainly if they're deteriorating. What about cerebral perfusion pressure? What's the uh, formula for that?
2: Yeah, so we like to talk
0: about this in vascular for protecting the spine, it's the same for the brain. It's your MAP minus your ICP. Right, and this is a surrogate for cerebral blood flow. And what's the number we wanna keep CPP above? greater than 60 exactly and in and, and traumatic brain injury uh, one of the issues uh, with blood flow to the brain is that the autoregulation function of your brain is actually lost or it can be uh, dysregulated and that can lead to the cpp being really uh, affected by your map by your blood pressure in general so that's why we care you know so much So a few other things that you want to consider when managing patients with head injury, you want to avoid, as we mentioned, hypoxia and hypotension. That is first and foremost. Ideally, the patient should not be febrile. They should have normal uh, temperature and uh, blood glucose as well. In general, seizure prophylaxis is recommended. Uh, You want to maintain a low threshold as well to obtain an EEG if you have concern for subclinical seizures following traumatic brain injury. Uh, And if the patient has any coagulopathy, you want to address that. And so that's a good segue, Kevin, into talking about our oral anticoagulants and how they might be uh, reversed. So let's start with warfarin. What is the mechanism of action of warfarin? So
2: warfarin, kind of the oldest one out there, this inhibits vitamin K-dependent synthesis of clotting factors such as 2, 7, 9, 10, and protein CNS. Okay. How do we reverse it? So we're going to go from fastest to slowest, PCC. Prothombin complex
0: is the fastest, then you have FFP, and then the slowest way is vitamin K. Great. PCC, FFP, vitamin K. Dibigotran or Pradaxa, what's the mechanism of, of action there? So this is a direct thrombin inhibitor, right, and very specific reversal agent. Praxbind. Yeah. All right, and the most common agents we see essentially on a daily basis at this point are Rivaroxaban or Xarelto and Apixaban or Eliquis. What is the mechanism of action here? These are factor 10a inhibitors, right? And reversal options for us. So to reverse this, we generally give PCC,
2: but now there's a specific reversal agent called Andexa that's very expensive but
0: is actually binds directly to the and reverses these. Great. And actually I forgot to mention this earlier. Do you give steroids for head injury? There's been a lot of studies into this and the conclusion is no benefit and they may potentially harm the patient. Great. Let's talk spinal cord injuries. So some specific spinal cord injury syndromes. Let's start with central cord. How does that present? So this presents as upper extremity weakness. Yeah. The old caping gloves generally seen in elderly patients with spinal stenosis. How about brown saccard or like the hemi transection of the spinal cord?
2: Yes. This is where you have the kind of differing symptoms. You'll have ipsilateral motor
0: deficit, and then uh, contralateral pain and temperature deficit below the level of the injury. Yeah, this would have to be a very specific type of trauma, like a spinal cord, uh, like a stab to the spinal cord that only goes through half the cord. How about anterior cord syndrome? So this
2: is what you see when you have a, uh, in vascular, when you do a T-VAR and they lose their
0: motor in their legs, you get a motor deficit below the level of the injury. Right, and that's from the anterior spot injury to the anterior spinal artery. And how about this uh, siwara? Spinal cord injury without radiographic abnormality. So the what populations that usually present? Yeah, it's really limited to just the pediatric population, right? So you have a clinical finding as a spinal cord injury without anything on imaging. Now, something that's quite confusing is this idea of neurogenic shock versus spinal shock. So neurogenic shock affects the hemodynamics, right? And this is hypotension that occurs due to loss of vascular tone. it can also occur if there's bradycardia when the injury is high enough to impact the sympathetic input to the heart which is t1 through t4 so kevin how do we treat neurogenic shock so for this you just resuscitate and use vasopressors and it typically improves within one to two weeks of the injury that's right so again neurogenic shock think hemodynamics versus spinal shock which has nothing to do with hemodynamics so spinal shock refers to the immediate loss of spinal cord function below the level of the injury, and this includes spinal cord uh, reflexes. And so the motor and sensory uh, deficits may or may not be permanent, depending on the type of injury, but when the spinal cord reflexes return, this indicates the resolution of spinal shock. Remember that you're always gonna have those spinal cord reflexes, even if it's below the level of injury. And so if you have reflexes present after a spinal cord injury, and you know that any residual or existing deficits at that time are likely permanent. And the way to really test this is the bulbal cavernosis reflex, which is when you actually uh, pinch the gland's penis or the clitoris, or you tug up on the foldy catheter and a normal response a normal reflex would be contraction of the anus in that setting. So Kevin, with spinal cord injuries, uh, what are some of the keys uh, to management? Yeah, so first you have to determine if it's a stable versus unstable
2: injury. Kind of one way to help determine this is if there's two of three columns disrupted of the spine, then it's unstable and requires operative fixation. You also want to remember that we don't use steroids for spinal injuries. And then some providers recommend elevated maps for a week or so after the injury to ensure spinal cord perfusion, although this is somewhat
0: controversial. Okay, let's move on to neck trauma. So, Kevin, what is what are the zones of the neck? Let's start with zone one. So zone one is from the clavicles to the cricoid cartilage.
2: And zone two? That's from the cricoid cartilage all the way up to the angle of the mandible. And zone three? So this is from the angle of the mandible to the skull base. Let's go in reverse. Zone three? Angle of the mandible to the skull base. Zone two? Cricoid cartilage
0: to the angle of the mandible. Zone one? Clavicles to the cricoid cartilage. Yeah. All right. So, on the app site, you get a patient who has a penetrating injury to the neck, who is hypotensive. What do you do? Straight to the operating room. Yeah. Or let's say they have hard signs of vascular injury. Straight to the operating room. Great. And what are those hard signs of vascular injury?
2: So, pulsatile bleeding, expanding hematoma, distal ischemia, brewery, or arterial thrill. Right. And if we don't have hypotension
0: or hard signs, where are we going? Uh, This is where we get our CTA of the neck. Yeah. Super, super useful. All right, Kevin. Let's say we have a vascular injury to zone. Yeah, so zone three is best approached through kind of endovascular interventions. Yeah, and what about zone one, same thing? Yeah, same thing, or a sternotomy. Right, so if vascular or IR colleagues aren't available, a sternotomy is the best approach to that zone one entry. Now, zone two, what's the uh, surgical incision for that? Yeah, this is kind of the most fun one. It's you get to do the incision along the
2: anterior border of the sternocleidomastoid. Yeah. And what are the steps to getting into the neck and onto the vessels? Just like if you're doing a carotid enderectomy, you do, uh, divide the platysma, you move the SCM laterally, you identify the medial border of the internal jugular, and then identify the facial vein and ligate it. And then you move the IJ laterally, and now you're at your carotid artery.
0: That's right. All right. So how about esophageal injuries? Let's talk about those. What are some signs of esophageal injury?
2: Yeah. So hard signs of injury that would prompt immediate evaluation is massive hemoptysis or hematemesis, respiratory distress, or air bubbling from the wound. Yeah. And how are you going to diagnose a esophageal injury? So an upper GI study with water-soluble contrast. Yeah. What if that's negative, but
0: you still have a high concern for esophageal injury?
2: And then I'd upgrade it to dilute barium an esophagoscopy.
0: Yeah. So at any point you can put a scope down as well and try to you know directly visualize an injury. How are we going to treat patients who come in with a very recent injury let's say it's an hour or two old? So if, if it's very recent, we can repair it immediately. Yeah. And you're going to debride that devitalized tissue. Definitely drain widely if given the option. You want to buttress the repair. What's a good piece of muscle to use for yeah, strap a muscle. Yeah, right from the neck anteriorly there. And uh, you want to keep the patient's MPO. You want to think also in these circumstances, obviously about feeding access to you. So get a tube past that repair so you can feed after the fact. What are some of the surgical principles when it comes to esophageal repair? We know the soph- esophagus has no serosa, right? So it can be a, a bit of a bear to uh, deal with. So what are some of these principles?
2: Yeah, so generally you want to extend the myotomy to see the full extent of the mucosal injury. And then you're going to repair in two layers and then buttress it with a muscle flap, hopefully,
0: and then drain it. Kevin, what if you're in the neck, you're looking around, and you can't find an injury? Then you can perform an EGD. That's right. And we didn't mention anything about tracheal injuries, but you want to use laryngoscopy and or bronchoscopy to evaluate a tracheal injury. If it is around any of the important structures in the vocal cords, you want to bring in your ENT colleagues, these injuries can also be repaired with interrupted absorbable suture as well. Moving on to blunt cerebrovascular injury. When uh, do we screen these patients? That's a really good question because uh, that's also somewhat nuanced. Some folks at this point in time are recommending universal screening for trauma patients while others use a certain criteria, the most common being the Denver or Memphis criteria. So what are these uh, guidelines, these screening guidelines rely on, Kevin?
2: Yeah, so they rely on symptoms like focal neurologic deficit or neck hematoma and then mechanism of injury such as a high-speed crash or a hanging, and then associated injuries such as including
0: face fractures, severe TBI, and chest trauma. Right. And what's the most common actual mechanism that leads to a blunt cerebrovascular injury? That's hyperextension. Yeah. And what's the actual injury to the vessel? So it's an intimal tear is the most common. Yeah. And there's a BCVI, a grading scale, goes one through five, number one, or that is the least severe, a mild injury or irregularity in the intima. Grade two is dissection with a raised intimal flap uh, or intramural hematoma with luminal narrowing that is greater than 25% and or intraluminal thrombosis. Grade three is a pseudoaneurysm. Grade four is vessel occlusion or thrombosis. Grade five is vessel transection with active extravasation. So in general, Kevin, uh, how do we treat blood cerebrovascular injuries? So For the 1 and 2 grades where you have patent
2: flow with some sort of intimal injury, you can use antithrombotic medications such as antiplatelets. Once you get to three, four, five, that's when you're going to have to intervene on the pseudoaneurysm or potentially the vessel occlusion. That gets a little controversial depending on what the symptoms are.
0: And then obviously a grade 5 needs uh, immediate surgery. Right. And remember that zone 1 and zone 3 are difficult to access surgically, and that's when you might consider things like stenting. All right, Kev, how are you feeling? Yeah, this is great. Yeah, we're cooking. We're cooking with gas here now. Let's keep going to thoracic trauma. So Kevin, what are the indications to take a patient to the OR based on bloody chest tube output? So if you have
2: 1500 milliliters out after the initial placement, that alone is an indication. Or if you have 200 milliliters per hour over four hours, or of course, if you have an
0: unstable patient despite blood product resuscitation. Right. And so it is patient specific, but those are good numbers to know for the exam. Kevin, how do you define flail chest? So this is when you have three consecutive rib fractures in two locations, right? And this can be associated with some pretty bad pulmonary contusions. Patients may be quite hypoxic. We manage flail chest with multimodal pain control, with pulmonary toilet, even epidurals and positive pressure ventilation like CPAP or BiPAP. And this is a one true proven indication for rib plating. So if you have a patient who has flailed chest, who's not doing well from a pain or respiratory standpoint, uh, randomized controlled data supports rib plating in this patient population. Great. Let's talk about blunt cardiac injury. What are some of the things that you associate with blunt cardiac injury, Kevin?
2: So high speed mechanisms, thoracic trauma, and chest pain.
0: Yeah. And if you get an EKG or if you get you know the EKG result on the test and it shows normal sinus rhythm, that patient is highly unlikely to have blunt cardiac injury, but any other dysrhythmia, including sinus tachycardia, warrants farther evaluation. What's the next test you're going to order to evaluate this patient? A troponin. Right. And if it's elevated, then we should closely monitor them and get an echocardiogram. Great. All right. Now while unlikely, you may be asked a question or two about the surgical management of penetrating cardiac injury. A few key points. Sternotomy is the preferred approach. Remember that when opening the pericardium you you want to avoid injury to the phrenic nerve, which runs laterally. To get quick control of bleeding from the heart, you can put your finger over the injury, and you can repair with 3-0 permanent monofilament suture. Oftentimes, we will use pledgets to help reinforce that repair. Great, Kevin, we get to now talk about one of your favorite topics, blunt aortic injury. So what's the most common site of injury to the aorta? So it generally happens at the ligamentum
2: arteriosum, and this happens just distal to the subclavian arteries where you see these injuries.
0: Yeah. What are some other you know possible sites of injury as well? So you can see that the aortic root or the diaphragmatic hiatus. Yeah. And to diagnose a aortic injury, we need that CTA. And so what are the types of injury the grading scheme?
2: Yeah. So there's kind of varying levels of injury similar to many of the vascular criteria. So you have a type one, which is just an intimal tear. You have a type two, which is an intramural hematoma. Type three is when we start getting excited about surgery, and that's gonna be the pseudoaneurysm where you have an external
0: contour abnormality of the actual aorta, and then type four is a rupture. Right, and so this is where the money's at on the test, is the management of blunt aortic injuries. So what uh, are some of the keys uh, in terms of, especially the medical management? Yeah, so you gotta get these
2: patients' blood pressure to control immediately. So generally, we put them on uh, Esmolol, short-acting
0: beta blocker, and try and keep their systolic blood pressure less than 120 right and this day and age most of these folks are getting repaired with uh, an endovascular approach is that right yeah definitely a t-var yeah. and how about uh, a patient who develops um, left hand ischemia following repair so yeah so there's times
2: when we're doing the t-var and so just to clarify it's only when we are treating type 3 or type fours is, is do we use a t-var um, most of the other injuries will heal over time and we just get repeat imaging but If you have left hand ischemia because you had to cover the left subclavian artery with your T-VAR,
0: then you need to do a carotid subclavian bypass. Okay, moving down to the belly. Kevin, what's the most common injury after blunt abdominal trauma? Generally, it's solid organ injury. Yeah, and the most commonly injury organ is the liver. What's the most common missed injury? So it'll be a hollow viscous or a pancreatic injury. Yeah, and a commonly tested area is a patient who comes in with an abdominal seatbelt sign. And that should prompt concern for bowel injury and or pancreatic injury. Kevin, okay, I mean, what if we have a patient with a CT scan who has free fluid, but no solid organ injury visible? So now you're concerned that there's a hollow viscous injury that is not visualized. Right, and so that patient needs to be taken to the OR for exploration. What if a patient has solid organ injury and they are hemodynamically unstable? Easy. OR. Great. Hemodynamically stable. CT scan. Right. With a blush? Angioembolization of IR. Great. And what if they
2: don't have a blush but have an injury? Let's say it's a grade three spleen. So these patients you can closely
0: monitor and do serial abdominal exam in labs. Right. And the key here is to is recognizing failure, right? So recognizing failure of non operative or non interventional management. And some of the common things you might see would be hemodynamic instability, obviously ongoing transfusion requirements, down trending hemoglobin and certainly worsening pain on exam. And these patients should be taken to the OR immediately. So don't get stuck going on the CT scan or other things like that. Take them to the OR in real life and on the test. And for the hollow viscous injuries, are you generally doing a, if you're concerned, are you starting laparoscopic? Yeah, so I think that's absolutely something that would be warranted if the patient's hemodynamically stable starting with a laparoscopic intervention. It would be a totally reasonable thing to say in the test. I'm not sure how they would cover that, you know, exactly versus open but if your skill set allows, by all means. All right, Kevin, here's a high yield topic, abdominal stab wound. So if the patient's hemodynamically unstable or they have evisceration or peritonitis on exam, that's easy, they're gonna to go to the operating room. But what about local wound exploration? Let's say you're looking at the wound, what finding uh, mandates a trip to the operating room, either with diagnostic laparoscopy or exploratory laparotomy? So you're gonna look for violation of the anterior rectus sheath, right? If that's equivocal, you can't really tell, what would be the next step in the workup?
2: In that situation, you get a CT scan or monitor them serially with exams and
0: labs. Right. Flank stab wounds are a special category because this raises concern for retroperineal injury. If the patient's otherwise well, you can get a CT scan with triple contrast, which would add a rectal contrast and can help identify uh, an injury to the colon. Uh, With thoracoabdominal stab wounds, you're going to have concern for a diaphragm injury. These can be difficult to see on the CT scan. So if you got a kind of funny question stem and things aren't quite adding up, or they're showing you X-rays and it looks kind of funny, you're going to want to take the patient to the operating room for diagnostic laparoscopy. So you can take a direct look at the diaphragm and that can be repaired with permanent suture and interrupted or running fashion. All right, last but not least, retroperitoneal injury. Remember that zone one is central and contains the aorta and IBC. Zone two lateral contains the kidneys and zone three is below the aortic bifurcation. This can be a little bit confusing. We'll try to simplify it. So if you have a penetrating injury, you should explore the entire trajectory of the injury. It does not matter uh, which zone you are in. It's a little more confusing with blunt injury. And so here's some general recommendations. If you have blunt injury with retroperitoneal bleeding or hematoma in zone one, that should be explored. Ideally, you want to get proximal and distal control before diving in. If you have a zone two injury, uh, again, blunt, you should explore only if you have expanding or pulsatile hematoma. And for zone three, in general, you don't want to go digging around down there. In this case, you'd want to pack and take the patient to IR. However, if there is concern for arterial injury, then exploration would definitely be warranted. All right, we did it. We covered a whole bunch. That's part one of two in trauma. We hope you enjoyed
1: it. Take it away, Jason and John. Thanks for listening and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 AppSite. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the AbSite.